This all started in museums and galleries. Now it's in classrooms, in country towns. This should not be here. It's a human being in a box. This is the stuff of empires. There is a great betrayal. We're not slaves, we're African. It's the stuff the British stole. I just don't believe that. It just does not stand up. From ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts, six brand new podcast episodes for free worldwide, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So imagine for a moment you're me. You're like a lifelong Neil Young fan and you get to talk to him on Zoom. And at one point he looks at you and he says, essentially, Tom, I don't know if I'm ever going to tour again. And you're shocked. But then he starts to explain himself and you start to think, makes sense. Neil Young is going to explain himself coming up. Plus, you know uh, what's a word I use a lot on this show? Breakout star. Like someone who steals every scene of every movie or TV show that they're in. But what happens when you get called a breakout star like four or five times? When do you become a star? Davine Joy Randolph knows about this and she has a lot to say on the topic. And she's coming up to tell you about it. My name's Tom Power. You're listening to Q. For the past few years, Neil Young has been angry. Don't get me wrong, like rightfully angry about climate change, about corporate greed, about the destruction of our environment. Um, And when you're Neil Young and you're one of the most influential songwriters of all time, Canadian, by the way, when you're angry, it makes the news. But does it make a difference? So here's where we are now. Word comes out that Neil Young has released a new album. It's called World Record. And instead of angry, it's about how beautiful the world was, how beautiful the world is. And it's that preciousness, it's that beauty that actually makes the world worth saving. It's a new tactic for him. And I got to say, it's effective. We talked about it over Zoom. Um, His old dog was sitting next to him the whole time. I just feel like mentioning that part. Here's my conversation with Neil Young. Hey, man. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Nice to see you. How are you holding up? I'm, I'm holding up pretty good. Can you, see, can you see me all right? Yeah, I can. Great. Uh, before we get going, Neil, I love the record, man. It's so oh, good. Thank you so much. I, thank you. Like, I love, I listened to it like two or three times just getting ready for this. I, I really love listening. I love Chevrolet so much. Oh, good. Thanks. Now, that's good. I'm, I really love the record. I think it's a really good record. I'm, I've heard all my records, and this is one of the special ones. I guess in the winter of 2021-2022, I was in the mountains, and I do a lot of walking in the mountains, a lot of walking in the snow and really high altitude, and I'm up there walking, and I like it. And I noticed every day I'd go walking, I'd be whistling, and I was whistling, and, and I noticed I was whistling, I was really enjoying it, and then the next day I was walking along whistling and I, I went, wait a minute, this is a different song than, than yesterday. And then I started trying to remember yesterday's song and I did. So I took out my flip phone and recorded it. So there was no words and there's no instruments. It's just whistling with walking. So there were, 
every day after that, I, I kept doing it. And I had at the end of it somewhere between nine and 14 of these things, uh, just the melodies. And then uh, a few months later, I was thinking I would record. I, I felt like, well, I feel like playing, making a record, but I didn't have any songs. And I said, well, wait a minute. I have a couple of songs. Um, and uh, one of them was um, Break the Chain, which I'd written before, uh, just as the pandemic started. I forgot it, and uh, and then when I recorded Barn, which came next, I didn't remember that song. So that song could have been on Barn, but it wasn't. And then, uh, but getting back to these whistling songs, I was sitting there and I, I getting ready for the session. I said, "Well, I should have listened to all these melodies." And so I put all of these things I had on my computer from the phone of whistling and walking, and and in two days I wrote all of the words to all the songs which was pretty fast, and there was no uh, corrections. So it was almost like channeling it. Somehow it came through in a flow. Is that, I mean, is that how you've written, is, is that the normal way you do it? Like you just kind of, the melodies oh. kind of come to you and it comes out of you? Oh. Usually I'm sitting around on, a, on an instrument and I start playing and singing and doing something and it all comes at once. This was different because when I got in the studio or when I even tried to make a demo to play for Crazy Horse, what the changes were, and literally had no idea what they were, had no visualization of guitar chord or anything, or any piano chords or keys, nothing, which was interesting. So that was completely different from the last 50 or so records. Yeah, I mean, I can kind of hear it. I mean, it is. it, it does sort of, I mean, I'm a bit scared to tell you what your record sounds like. But it, <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I don't. I'm not dying to tell you what your record sounds like. But there's like, <laughs> but there's like Tin Pan Alley is sort of melodies here. You know, they're sort of like you know, kind of older style melodies here too. In yeah, addition like to like old, old folk music or something, they are old melodies. They're from another place. What were you? I mean, I have some thoughts on what I think this record's about. But who wants to hear them? What did you find yourself writing about? Well, when I started writing. Uh, the main thing I feel is positive about if we all understand what we're up against and we can all see it at once, that that's going to really help us. So that's the message in almost every song, one way or another. I really feel that we're up against something huge. And the reason why everybody is angry and the reason why there's so much derision and division in the world is that we know that we're up against something that we're not even looking at. We know that we're up against something that we're not even looking at. So you're, you're talking right. about that, like the actual, like, I assume we're talking about the climate here. Like, yeah, we're talking about the world and the climate of the world and how everything has changed. But the thing is that the world is more scared of climate change than they are of anything else, but they are not talking about it. So it comes out in everything else. Hold on. Let me, let me try to understand that. The world is more afraid of climate change. We are all more afraid of climate change and, and, than anything else. But we don't want to talk about it. That seems to be the case. It seems like we're focused on 
left and right, you know, democracy versus uh, whatever the other thing is, all these things that are happening in the world now in all the different countries everywhere, the division and everything is, I think it's all fueled by this background feeling that we're hearing stories of the end times. We're hearing stories of we can't survive like this. Our kids won't have the same world we had. Our grandchildren uh, won't have the same world at all. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, Here, There and Everywhere. Listen to Season 2 of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I got to tell you, man, like, can we just talk about a song on this record that that I think leads to what we're talking about here? Because what I'm hearing there is not just that the world's in um, hard shape, but on this record, I hear like your love for the world. Like, oh, I, hear, I, I hear like how sad it is. How sad, like, let, let's talk about um, Love Earth. The sky was blue and the air so clean, the water crystal clear. We lived by the sun and had it all. We were living in a dream. Yeah, that's right. I remember my childhood. That's what it was like. I remember, and since then, I remember the leaves turning every year and things happening. And now when you look at it, you go, please, you know, let's have the seasons. Let's have the seasons. That's what we really want. That's the first thing we started losing, that they're becoming the differences from season to season are all blurred now and everything is a little out of perspective. So, or, or a lot out of perspective, depending on how you look at it. But that's, that's the backdrop of everything. But my love for Earth and the beauty of Earth and all of the things about living here that I really appreciate it's in all the songs. I'm I'm really thankful for for having been here, and being able to see what I what I saw during. I'm 76 now. I'll be 77 in a month or so. And during this time, and to see all these changes, but I got to see it when it was really beautiful, incredibly beautiful, and it still is beautiful. But it's so threatened and so uh, on edge, and it's very unnatural what we've done and we did it so if anybody can undo it it's going to be us well you're seeing that in the activism of like the gen z like the new generation coming up they're they're pretty hard on the baby boomer generation for for their for their uh, what they've done to the earth how do you feel when you see the gen z this new kind of new generation of activists talking about climate i feel like they're right i feel like i'm one of them i guess it's just that uh I'm also one of the people that they're criticizing. So I think if we loved Earth and really treated it with respect because we do love it 
that we would see when we're doing something wrong and stop doing it. Even if we have a gasoline-powered car, we would turn it off and not use it very much if we knew what was going on. So that is a little bit of the song Love Earth. It's from Neil Young's record, uh, World Record. I'm talking to Neil Young right now. And when you listen to the record, you get the vibe that he's singing about a certain chapter of his life ending. And I wanted to ask what exactly he was referring to. And I got to say, his answer to that caught me off guard. When I look at that, of course, I look at my playing gigs and going out and doing this again. I'm really, when I look at the compromise that I would have to make to do that, uh, the things that I don't believe in that I'd have to endorse, it's not absolutely over, but the idea of being responsible for people to come to a venue, and uh, I mean, I can deal with the power for the venue. I can make it clean. I can make the PA clean, the lights clean, the electricity in the building clean. I can clean up all my vehicles. I've got the right fuel. I can do all of that. But the food, all those places are are fed by factory farms. That's where the food comes from that everybody eats. And I can't I can't support it. So you may imagine the agencies that support touring and the uh, and the uh, you know all uh, all the bookers. And the halls and all the venues that they can't have the same food that they always have, that their contracts with those people have to be wiped out, that it has to be good food, it has to be clean food, sustainably grown and presented in a sustainable way. That's a big difference. So, so the fuel is half of it and the food is the other half. Are you, and, you know, are you, are you telling me you're not going to you're not going to go on the road anymore? I'm telling you that unless the venues are clean and that they and that they work that way that I won't be there. I've seen that too much. Yeah. I can't do it. I can't I believe what I believe and it's grounded in science. I I know what's going on in the planet, what caused it, what we're continuing to do and I cannot support buildings and organizations and companies that will not change that. If they change it, then I can consider going. And that's why I haven't been there. I just didn't feel like it. And then finally, when I really got down to it, and I found fuel, I did all the things that I needed to do to do that. We found some renewable diesel. It's, you know, it's not fossil fuel. And uh, chemically, chemically, it's a lot of the same structure as fossil fuel. So it's, it works with all of our vehicles and everything and the generators and it works well but it's not putting the fossil damage into the atmosphere that's very important to me but the food thing that's like you're dealing with people who don't even care they don't seem to care now maybe they do but we're going to find out because that's what we're doing right now let me reintroduce you here my guest is neil young we're talking about his new album with crazy horse world record 
I love Chevrolet. It's a 15-minute crazy horse jam tune. I love that one too, and it's all electric guitars and jamming and everything. And oddly enough, uh, I wrote it on the piano up in Canada at a cottage, just uh, you know, sitting there for months and just walking by the piano every day, messing around. So the so the uh, the, the it's got a very complex structure to it, uh, much more complex than any of my other songs that are long songs like cowgirl or down by the river or uh love and only love or you know all those kind of songs that i've done with the horse over the years this is a little more than that uh it's evolved to another place but the song itself about the car and about not just the car but all the cars that have been there they're like uh they've taken me from place to place through through things in my life that that came to me when I was writing that song. And I, uh, they're, you know, monumental parts of my life. And now as much as I love that, I need to, uh, be thinking about the world. So I can't drive those cars anymore. I haven't driven them in years. I stopped. No fossil fuel. I won't go if it's fossil fuel. So I'm redesigning and rebuilding some of my old 40s cars to run on E100 now. You decided to work with Rick Rubin on this. I mean, for a yeah. band, for Crazy Horse, for a band who last time we talked about this, he said you were telling me the stories about how, like, man, I go into a, I go into a room, I get handed a guitar, I got those dudes around me, and we play music, and the music you hear is the music that we played in that room at the time. Why did you want to work with Rick, with, with Rick Rubin on this? Because he, he's a musical guy. He loves music. And nothing that he does is against what I'm doing. He's got a great crew of engineers. Everybody knows what they're doing. Rick loves music. And I, I love him because of that. It's great working with him. I would say to Rick, you know, these songs, you know, the way we've done them the way we do them, and they're great and everything, and I'm singing live, and I love singing live, and there it is and everything. But, you know, when I made records when I first started, every once in a while I double-track a vocal or I do a little of this and that just, just to give it a little edge and accelerate a few words here and there. And he said, uh, he just said, what song do you want to do it on? And I said, well, let's try this one. And he said, and, you know, like five minutes later we were doing it. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. And he's a great record maker. So making a record with him was uh, a joy, really. You, you, li- you like those records he made for Johnny Cash and Tom Petty and, and Beastie Boys and all that stuff? You know, I, I, I really, the, the, the Johnny Cash record I listened to. Yeah. What have I become? My sweetest friend. Well, because I love Johnny Cash, and not that I don't love the other guys, but and uh, the main thing is I hear I just heard Johnny's voice, and Johnny was was Johnny, and he was happening. I'm going. Rick's done a great job. Johnny's being himself, you know, and uh, you know, and he's like an arranger too. Rick, he does things 
uh, record-making things that he'll try. And, uh, you know, sometimes we, we did it, sometimes we didn't. But almost all the time, it was a great idea. It's just a simple little thing. But. Yeah. Why is your dad... I mean, your dad, the great writer, Scott Young, why, 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 why is your dad on the cover? Well, he was first, you know, he was there. So he, he he's like, you know, the leader. What can I say? I'm, 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 I'm on the back. My mom and I are in the middle, in between. And my brother and my sister are the folders, the, the, the slips for each record to go in. It's one of the only album covers that I ever really did totally by myself. I have no idea why it's the way it is. It's just what happened. It's what I wanted to do. It gave me a good feeling. It gave you a good feeling to put your dad on the cover of it. Great, great feeling. I thought he looked great. He did. (laughs) He got that great suit on walking through the street. He looks amazing. He's looking good. And that's where I came from. You know, I came out of him and my mom and and everything that they did before that. And uh, and now you got my sister and my brother and what they're doing. And that's it. That's our family. I mean, you, you come from a, a you come from a good stock of people who aren't afraid to say what's on their mind. You know, who aren't your dad was like that too. I heard a story about him one time that didn't he get kicked off a hockey night in Canada for getting in a fight with the Leafs owner or something like that? He got in a fight with one of them, yeah, because he said something about he said something about some deal they made, and uh, he said this is just a, you know this is basically said it was bullshit and uh, and called it out for what it was what he thought it was. He didn't say it had to be that. He just said, that's what I think. That's what he did. And then he got in a lot of trouble, but he didn't give a shit. Not that I could tell. That's Neil. I'm not, I I don't get paid enough to psychoanalyze anybody, but (laughs) I see a little bit of that in you, man, if you don't mind me saying so. (laughs) Well, you know, that's possible. I think it's a nice feeling when we see him. You know, my dad's gone. I think it's a nice feeling when I see myself, when I see a little bit of him in me. I like that feeling. Yeah, I do too. I think it's not all about me. That's for sure. And that's another part of the world record, is it's not about me. You know, I'm there, but for some reason I don't sound like I usually do. It's not exactly what you expect. The things that you've come to know are partly there. But there's other things there. The instrumentation is completely whack. Weird organs are on this thing. Uh, it's <laughs> Yeah, weird, weird kind of pump organs are on this kind of thing. Harmoniums are on this thing. You're right. It's not, it's not, people are coming to this for a Neil Young record. They're going to yeah. get an interesting people. Are, people are coming to this for trans again, or people are coming to this for like I don't know. Uh, uh, after the gold rush again, they're going to get a bit of a. They're going to get a bit. Yeah, of they're a, getting trans and after the gold rush. <laughs> this is just as much trans and just as much after the gold rush as either one of those ones. We're also here to talk about the 50th anniversary of Harvest, probably your biggest record. Uh, old man, heart of gold, needle in the damage done. These songs are going to live on long after we're all gone. When was the last time you put on that record? Uh, a long time ago, I guess. I mean, I've listened to a few tracks from it here and there. But, um, you know, it really isn't any different from any of the other records. So I, 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 I feel that it was, it was taken, it, 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 it was taken by people and made into something that was right for them and right for the times for them. Uh, but when I listen to it, it's, uh, it's you know, it has all of the qualities that it should have. And the musicians are great. It, it has all the qualities it has to have 
to reach out to a lot of people. And it was kind of an accident that that happened. What do you mean? Only like uh, I was in Nashville and I was playing the Johnny Cash show. And I met this producer. His name is Elliot Mazur. And he said, why don't you make a record of these songs, Neil? I mean, we're here. This is Nashville. I could get a studio and I'll get you musicians. And I said, you know musicians? And he said, yeah. And he and then, and then he said, why don't you just come in the studio day after tomorrow? And, you know, James and Linda are here. We might be able to get them to sing on a few things to see what happens. So I said, fine, great. I asked James about that. I asked James Taylor about that. Uh, take a listen to this. Neil asked us to uh, work up a, a harmony part for uh, for the chorus of Old Man and um, and the Heart of Gold. remember uh, uh, picking up a six-string banjo, which is tuned like a guitar, so uh, it was it was playable for me. And I, I remember uh, Linda and I uh, sitting down and, and working up, choosing parts for that harmony and uh, running them by Neil, who, who had some changes, and, uh, and then uh, putting them down. I, I just uh, remember the room, uh, the colors in it, uh, yeah, it was it, it was a great moment. This James Taylor remembering his time recording Harvest with my guest Neil Young. What do you make of that? That's great. I kind of remember it the same way. I, a little different perspective, but I think it's uh, it just happened really fast. It was really natural, and uh, and it, it, this all everybody on the record is a very accessible musician. Everybody playing is top drawer. I mean. Kenny Buttry played on Kathy's Clown by the Everly Brothers. You know, he played on some classic things. He played with a lot of people and played great. And uh, Ben Keith played with Farron Young. He played with Patsy Cline. I think he's on I Fall to Pieces. Um, so these musicians are just great. And then there's Linda, and who's just amazing what a beautiful lady she is i talked to her a couple of weeks ago her soul is so good and uh and she just you know she's a real human being and james is james he's so great he's a great guy so it all happened really easily i wanna live i wanna kill i've been not the making of it that I'm, that I'm so interested. I mean, it's really interesting to hear about the making of it, but it's also like what happened afterwards. I mean, really famously, um, in the liner notes to Decade, you said, the success of Heart of Gold put me in the middle of the road. Traveling there soon became a bore, so I headed for the ditch. A rougher ride, but I saw more interesting people there. Yeah. But that doesn't say anything negative at all about any of the other folks. No, but t- but tell me about that. You were feeling like you were like, oh, I'm, I'm becoming a bit of a pop star through Heart of, Heart of Gold and I don't want this? No, I wanted uh, uh, the content different. 
uh, being a pop star was an accident, and I, I took it as an accident. It's all about coming together with the music and playing the songs and being in, in the moment of what the songs are. And I like to play with people who do that. But where does that come from in you? Because I think that the music industry, since the very beginning, since Ricky Nelson, has tried to take people and shape them into a certain thing. And not everybody is able to go, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do my own thing. In fact, very few people are able to do that. Why do you think you were able to do that? Where does that come from in you? I just didn't give a shit. I didn't want to do, I didn't want to be anything other than what I had been doing. I just said, sure, we can do whatever you want to do as long as it's exactly what I feel like doing. You know, <laughs> that's what I've been doing. Yeah. That's all I, I just want to do what I do. And that makes it fun. That's why I'm still making records. Yeah. That's why I made this record. And Barn is a really good record, too. Yeah. And, uh, the other one we did, Colorado. But we did three in a row, and they're all, you know, each one is a, is uh, more developed than the one in front of it. And, uh, you know, so it kept growing. And then we got to this. And I don't know what's next, but uh, it'll probably be something different. Not uh, Nine I, records since 2019, by the way. If you include the reissues and the live records that have come out, nine records have come out since 2019 from the Neil Young yeah, world. That's a lot of records. But you can't count the reissues. You can't count those because those are, those are records that happened at another time. There just wasn't enough time to get them out. So I want to make sure that they get done right. What does that mean? So I know that you don't live forever, uh, although I only know it in the background. I I I want to um, get those records that I still have that are unreleased and get them done the way I want them. I don't want someone else to do that after I'm gone. I've heard that. I don't like those. I want it to have the vibe of what we started with. And that's why we did Toast the way we did. It was basically done a long time ago, but we had to go back in about 10 years ago and do some stuff with it that I did with John Hanlon, but we still didn't put it out. I'm, I'm struck by you saying, I, not, I know I'm not going to live forever, but that's kind of in the background. Yeah, it is. It's there now. I, I, I'm aware of it. Um, but I'm not... I just want I, I just want to uh, continue doing what I do, and uh, you know the music industry and people like me have gotten to be. That's just a whole other thing. I don't even know what it is. I just know that, um, like when I when I see artists that are out there today, and I uh, and I read about some of the money that they make and how rich, incredibly wealthy these people are. I mean, I never, you know. It's like I said to somebody else the other day, it's kind of like I have a paper route or something compared to these people. <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm doing. I'm dropping off my records, you know, walking down the street with my bag. So, you know, like, I don't I, I don't want anything to do with that. Really. I'm happy the way things are, are going. That's my dog drinking in the background. Well, that's good. I hope he doesn't have a drinking problem. No, no. It's <laughs> a good girl, man. You're good. What's the name of the dog? Moon. Can I see? Yeah, she's right here. Moon. Look. They're kicking me out, but I want to see the dog. Okay. Here we go. There you go. Oh, what a sweetheart. See her? Okay. Yeah, I see her. Neil, um, I, I really yeah. love the record. I really love any chance I get to talk to you. And, and thanks for making the time. 
Hey, thanks, Tom. I really appreciate you taking the time and and uh, spreading this around Canada like you will. And I'm glad I just got a chance to talk to you in the roadie and the radio world. And uh, everything's good. Good, man. I hope to see you soon and we can talk again. Take care of yourself, eh? I will. You too. You take care also. So that is Neil Young and Harvest. Uh, We didn't film that interview, but if you want to see a picture of me being very excited to talk to Neil Young on Zoom, you can find that on my Instagram, at Tom Joe Power. Neil Young's new record is called World Record, and it's out now. So this is interesting. The actor Davine Joy Randolph is this classically trained actor and opera singer. And she's been in big shows like Only Murders in the Building, big movies like Dolomite Is My Name, uh, big plays like Ghost. And in each of those roles, in the reviews afterwards, she's called a breakout star. What happens to you when you're called a breakout star over and over again? When will you break out? Are you doing something wrong? So what starts out as a conversation about the new movie she's in called On the Come Up, where she plays um, an, an aunt to a aspiring hip-hop star. And we talk a little bit about her own sort of relationship with hip-hop. But it turns into a conversation about what happens when you're called emerging over and over again. Here's some of my conversation with Davine Joy Randolph. I want to tell a little bit more of your story here, right? So uh, you're from Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, I got to speak to Angie 
Thomas, who wrote the on the come up a couple of times now for for the mm. show, um, and she talked to me a little bit about wanting to be an MC when she was a kid. Mm-hmm. And you're coming from this place. You're coming from Philadelphia with one of the greatest hip hop histories in the history of the genre. Mm. What was your relationship to the music when you were growing up? Did you did you want to be an MC yourself? Did you, can you relate to Angie on that? No, I didn't want to necessarily be an MC, but uh, music was everywhere, all the time. Yeah, nonstop. I remember as a kid, I used to think something was wrong if there wasn't music, right? Like, if there was an absence of music in the house, something happened. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. we have to tell you something. Or yeah. Turn the music down. So, listen. Right? So, music was everywhere. And in my neighborhood, ironically, almost every block or every other block, ironically, the top of the ends of the blocks on the corner— Top of the corner, in the corner of the block, somebody had an in-home recording studio. It was a thing. When growing up, it was a thing. So it was like recording in somebody's makeshift home studio. There was constant content and creativity. Were you recording in those studios? Absolutely. What were you singing? Whatever, covers, whatever. And so for a long time, I thought like, oh, this is what I... Like, I was more in that R&B realm of things coming up. So I thought music was going to be the course. And opera ended up being the course for a little opera while. Opera was a day. My li- I am where I am today because I'm very competitive and dares. How did opera enter into your a life? A girl came to our school yeah. from Canada. Hello. And she was like, I went to Interlochen Performing School of the Arts. And I was like, it literally wasn't even talking to me. We were in choir. I will never forget this. I heard it, and I was like, what the hell is interlocking? I don't care. I'm going. I apply. It's a full classical, well, classic and jazz, but you know what I mean? Like, sure. still, like, a classically based school. I had never sang opera in my life. Mm-hmm. Strictly, like, R&B, whatever. And... Put a, I had to do like a little audition tape. I got in. I then worked with a voice teacher. I had won a voice teacher for so long. But, I mean, not to get off tangent, but usually, I mean, you know this, usually they say to wait till after you're going through puberty because your voice changes. Yeah, of course. I got puberty I'm, late. I'm waiting on it still. Yeah, I mm-hmm. got it late and I was like, I'm going now. And so finally I got puberty, had the teacher... But she was, I went to like a Christmas concert and it was an all black classical group and I was blown away. And there was one woman in particular and when the concert was over, I was like, can you please be my voice teacher? And she was like, sure, no problem. And so I was taking voice lessons with her, but she was te- she was sneaking in classical. Oh, uh, Yeah. And so then I get into this program. I go to Interlochen. I get the lead in the operetta. Wow. And I'm like, okay. I guess this is what we're going to do. But isn't that kind of the story the whole way up? Like you, you get into Interlochen and then you end up becoming the, you know, the lead in the opera after, you know, getting in. People, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't have the same experience as everybody else, but you end up getting in. Yeah. I mean, let's just talk a little bit about your acting career. You auditioned to be an understudy. In- but even before that, singing, right? Yeah. Go to college. Yeah. Because everybody's saying, oh, you've naturally got the gift yeah. to do classical. Go to college for that. Yeah. 
then get kicked out. Why? We're doing Aida. Uh-huh. I was like, this is heavy stuff. Uh-huh. I'm being buried alive with a white guy who I'm in love with, and I'm enslaved by the man that actually I should be the princess and queen over. Uh-huh. It's complicated. I feel like I should know what I'm saying and meaning. Like Shakespeare. I want to know. I don't want to just sing it and be a singing head. I want to know what's happening. Work with an acting coach just so that I could be better performer of an opera singer. Never wanted to act in my life. They find out. I didn't know how I needed to keep it a secret. They get pissed, kick me out. Because you had an acting coach? In the States, at least. Classical, well, just music departments and theater departments rival. Because there are a lot of kids are. And so... I guess they were just like, one or the other will make the choice for you. So my mother was the one that was like, you should go to the theater department. I was like, what? No, because it happened in my junior summer. So I'm almost out the door, and then I get booted. And so my mom was like, well, you're getting that diploma, so yeah, most of your credits can transfer over there. So in one year, I graduate from Temple University. With an acting degree, they were the ones that were like, we're, they literally were like, we're signing you up for graduate school. And these are the places you're going to audition Yale, for. Yale, you went to Yale, right? Yale was my first audition. I didn't even know what it was. So still on this, right? So yeah. you, you tell that story. You tell the story before it. You, you, as I mentioned, you auditioned to be an understudy in Ghost the Musical. You end up being nominated for a Tony. You, sick. I was Sick. I thought you were telling me, isn't that sick? Oh, no, I was sick. <laughs> we did it. Yes, yeah, so uh, I was happy babysitting in New York being a nanny. Yeah. My team was like, mm, it's conflicting with the schedule. You can do this understudy thing where you can have the rest of your day free, and that's almost like your side hustle. I was like, okay, cool. Book it. The lady who was doing it in London on the West End gets sick. They fly me over before we do the thing. So technically my first job. Is on the West End, which is insane. Got sick in London, flew back to the States, and I was sick the entire... It was like a cold that never stopped. I, I'm so excited you're telling me the story because I feel like you're going to have an answer for the question I wanted to ask you about it, which I didn't know if you did. Mm. So that's an amazing story. She's sick. You go over there. Your first job is on the West End. Again, this is just another one of the stories you're telling yeah. me here, right? And you, you, you end up being nominated for a Tony for that role. Uh, I first came across you in, in Dolomite Is My Name opposite Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Eddie Murphy is his first big role back. I mean, everyone's talking about it. You're kind of the breakout star. You're getting written up in a lot of different places. It's kind of one of the big breakouts of things that people are noticing about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, let's talk about uh, Only Murders in the Building. You know, yeah. that show has. I got that job because of Dolomite. Oh, really? That's what Steve Martin told me. Steve Martin said, I loved what you did in Dolomite because they had worked together before. You know, he was like, and I love to see. Uh, your interaction with him and how you held your own. And because of me watching Dolomite, I said, let's put her in Only Murders. You have Steve Martin and Martin Short and Selena Gomez, three very I famous people them. in that show. But you become – everyone's talking about you. You become a kind of the breakout star of that. And I appreciate it. But I think that also had a lot to do with the showrunner. He really sure did a great job of crafting something – Quite lovely, uh, and I just really love John Hoffman. He's really wonderful. What, but what's going on here? And that every story you've told me so far kind of sounds the same. They kind of rhyme to me. People are underestimating you a little bit, mm. and then you shine beyond it. 
Like you are coming to a hard situation. Not only do you excel, you right. succeed. I think I think at this point I just let the higher power take the wheel. Do you know what I mean? Like in the chaos. What are you what are you going to do? There seems like there's some kind of lesson there. Like every single story you told me has been against all odds. It worked oh, out. Oh, yeah, it's feasible. It's all doable. It just depends on how much you want it. Do you know what I mean? And where are you going to focus your energy in the peak of chaos? Sure. Do you know what I mean? I think Breakout Star, while being cool, it's great to be called a Breakout Star. If you get called a Breakout Star enough, which you are a lot, I think it means that people are underestimating you. This is, so I had a, this is actually really interesting. I had a talk with my publicist because I forget at what point it was, but... I think it was like the sixth time or something, someone had called me a breakout. And I remember I was like, am I doing something wrong? Like, how do you break out every time? And she literally was like, you're just standing out in every project you're doing. So they're using this catchphrase, breakout. And they might keep saying it until like, or if I were to then... I don't read reviews, for example, but I think she said with this, some journalists had said, like, I don't know how with the consistency of her work, she's not considered at this point an A-list actor, whatever that means, right? Those are all labels, titles, whatever. To me, I think it's their way of just being like, you did it again. Check. You did a good job. It's amazing to hear your story and, and just, you know, what you've walked into and, and how you've blown everybody away. And I think we can say you did that here, too. I mean, really lovely to talk to you. Thank you. As you can tell there, I loved getting the chance to talk to Dave I and Joey Randolph. Um, if you want to watch the movie we were there to talk about, it's called On the Come Up. It's streaming now on Paramount+. Plus. Um, and Only Murders in the Building, which she's incredible in, is streaming on Amazon Prime. And that is it for us today. As always, our email address is q at cbc.ca. If you want to drop me a line, I'd love to hear from you. I'm on Instagram at Tom Joe Power. I'm on TikTok at Thomas J. Power. Tomorrow, you'll hear Sheku Kenna Mason, who is this unbelievable cellist who once played for one billion people watching Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's wedding. And he didn't get nervous. He'll tell you why not. We'll see you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.